Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Isaiah. I'm going to start in chapter 10, verse 33, read through 11:11, and then we will look at Romans 15, verses 12 and 13. Isaiah 10, 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nation inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. And then from Romans 15, 12, and 13. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. How many of you have not yet sent your Christmas cards? Raise your hand. Good. How many of you plan not to send Christmas cards? That's what I thought. How many of you have and you feel good that that's done? I love or we love, I should say, as a family receiving Christmas cards. Many of you send us cards. And our tradition is whoever gets the mail has the privilege of opening and looking at the cards. I never get to open the cards. They're open before I get home. Our tradition is to look at them carefully, read what's been written, particularly paying attention to Scripture verses if they're on there, and they usually are, that a family or an individual selected. And then we throw the Christmas cards into a massive bowl. I mean, a big decorative bowl. And that bowl sits on our coffee table. 
not just through the season of Advent and into the new year, but the whole year until the next Advent. And occasionally we reach in, pull a card out, read it again, pray for that family or those individuals. It's a sweet thing. The verse that I read last would make a great verse for a Christmas card. Let me read it again. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let me read that again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Sometimes when I see the Christmas cards, because the photo is of a large family or the people are distant, I want to see more clearly what's there. And I don't know if you've done this or not, but though it's not digital, I pretend it is, and I take my fingers and I put them on the card and try to advance it, try to zoom in. Does anybody do that? Have you done that? Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, today, that's what we're going to do with this verse. We're going to zoom in and look at what hope Paul's talking about as it connects back to Isaiah 11. So in order to understand it, we have to zoom in, but to understand it more fully, we have to zoom out. And in order to do that, you're going to need a Bible. I've been saying a lot this past semester, bring your Bible to church. Um, we have them in the pew rack, so grab one now if you didn't. It's blue. There's not enough for everyone, so share with the person next to you, because we're going to go all over the scriptures this morning. And the reason we're going to do that is because what's written for us I believe is meant to be normative in the life of a Christian. And so with this benediction, that's what Romans 12, 13 is. Paul says, may the God of hope, he's praying to the God of hope. There's one God of hope. Anything else you're seeking to put your hope in is going to fall. It will fail you. But this God of hope is giving us something. And so Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I'm curious this morning, believer, believer, those who believe in Jesus, are you abounding in hope? What that means is, is hope pouring out from you. When you look at the world, when you look at your own soul, when you consider the dynamics of your life, whatever's happening, are you as a believer abounding in hope? I want you to think about that. Paul's prayer, and therefore a prayer we should have for one another, is that would be our reality. It doesn't mean that the circumstances that are hard and difficult, especially if they're the result of sin, should be something we delight in. But even while we're dealing with bitter providence, we as his people can abound in hope. But it's a hope that is much different than many think. To understand it, we need to understand this whole idea of the root of Jesse. In your bulletin, go to the front, page two. As we're preaching through the 
Now, antiphons, we've come to the third petition. And the text is what we sing in the great Christmas anthem, probably the oldest Christmas carol we sing. And we, this morning, sang, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. What does that mean? What does the rod of Jesse mean? Phrases like that are ones that we grow up hearing and singing, and as we grow in our faith, we may begin to understand something more of what is there. But friends, the essence of this hope that Paul is praying for the people to have, praying for us to have, has a lot to do with the proper understanding of this rod of Jesse. It's what Isaiah mentions twice in Isaiah 11. But to understand it, we need to go all the way back to Genesis. So I want you to take your Bible, turn to Genesis 2. And as you're turning there, what we're going to do is explore the history of trees and the history of redemption. We're going to explore the history of trees and the history of redemption. So let's begin in Genesis 2 at verse 8. Now, this is going to feel a little bit like a history lesson. Some of you love history, and some of you right now are tempted to check out. Stay with me. We're going to read a lot of the living Word of God, and it's all easy to understand. But it's a powerful narrative of why this phrase, the stump of Jesse, the word remnant, why it matters so much. So let's begin Genesis 2, verse 8. And the Lord God, the one who created everything, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So every tree, every plant, every flower. And it continues to be the case. Everything you see God has created. Adam was the first human being to see a tree. He was the first human being to see anything. The Lord describes it. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, is that clear? It's clear. God has no problem making himself clear. What he wanted from his creation, from Adam, man created in his own image, and soon after woman created in his own image, he is clear about what he wants. And what he wants is always given for life. It's not given to destroy. It's not given to limit life. It's given for life. And so he's very clear. We're going to see how clear he is in just a moment as we move to Genesis 3. There's the serpent. Now the serpent is Satan. And Satan in his crafty ways is going to come and he's going to begin to tempt them against the word of God. Look with me at Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
Woman has now been created. So it says, he said to the woman, the serpent is speaking. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? That's the first question in the Bible. And the first question in the Bible is not from God. It's from Satan. And it's a question against God's authority. It's a question against what God had clearly communicated. And it's the same question the enemy continues to use this day. Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? So you see that Eve understood. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the garden, in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God comes into the garden, making himself known again. They hear him. Verse 9, he asked his first question. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God's second question. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? God's third question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I have not, that I've commanded you not to eat? And now you see the consequences of the fall of man, the consequences of sin. As soon as they ate the fruit, as soon as they disobeyed what God had told them, as soon as they took from this tree, the only tree they were commanded not to eat from, their eyes were open. They realized they were naked. They didn't know they were naked. There was no shame in their bodies being presented to one another unclothed. But immediately when they ate the fruit, fear came, shame came, guilt came. The consequences of sin had entered into the world and those consequences were great. God speaks, where are you? Adam says, verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. You see present there the brokenness between Adam and Eve, the brokenness between Adam and God, the brokenness between Eve and God, the brokenness as a result of sin of all these relationships. Now this is important. Every sin that has been done against you all the realities of the sinful world we live in, all of its darkness, all of its decay, all the sin that is inside you that you have done, thought, failed to do, is traced back to this tree, traced back to this moment when they fell, and that condition has affected all of mankind. How great was it? Well, the Lord gives 
blood by the shedding of two animals, skins them and covers Adam and Eve. They have two boys, one murders the other. And it continues to get worse and worse. Turn in your Bible, just a couple pages over to Genesis 6. Continuing to think about the theology of trees, the history of trees and the history of redemption. Listen to how God describes the world. Just now, the sixth chapter of the Bible. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, that's important to note, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the world was bad, it was evil, it was corrupt. God says this, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Let's pause there for a minute. Most children grow up seeing Noah's ark as a play toy. Maybe even as early as the thing, the mobile that hovers above their crib. And I, I know that we had Noah toys all over our house and Noah stories. And I'm glad that it wasn't very realistic. Because if it was realistic, every child would grow up with very serious issues. The world was so bad that God decided to destroy it. But the same God who said, where are you? Not because he didn't know where Adam and Eve was. He was indicating already in the early parts of the Bible, I'm coming for my people. He said, I am going to preserve a remnant. The remnant will be eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, their three wives. They are going to get into this ark that is made out of gopher wood. So I want you to pause for a minute. Think slowly about what you're hearing. Think what Noah heard. I'm going to destroy everything. But in order to preserve a remnant of my creation, of humanity, I'm going to save you. In order for you to be saved, you need to go and build me an ark. And the details of the ark are given. And it's going to be built with gopher wood. Now I want you to think for a minute about how Noah went and then looked at the trees that he would then cut down or have cut down, then moved to the place where he is begin, going to plane them and cut them and begin to hammer them into an ark that's going to hold these eight human beings and all these different pairs of animals. Those trees now, imagine falling. Now imagine after all the trees have been taken down that will be used for the building of the ark, all the stumps that were just present. What a scene. Have you ever seen the devastation of a tornado that moves like in Moore, Oklahoma? I'm from Oklahoma. My grandmother was in that one massive F5. Her life was spared, but her house was lifted off the slab. Every tree gone. And you just see the devastation. Imagine what it looked like where Noah was just chopping down these trees, bringing this wood. The history of trees and the history of redemption. Imagine what it looked like when the water finally receded. Pretty frightening picture. Let's move forward. The history repeats itself. 
that God has commanded a way it's to be for life. And there would be leaders that would follow him, followed by leaders who wouldn't. And leaders who would follow him for a while and then wouldn't follow him. There is this cycle of sin, oppression, and then deliverance. Sin, these individuals who are part of the people of God sinning, falling short. Then the oppression that would come from judgment and God's righteous wrath, followed by deliverance. So think about Abraham. Think about Moses. Think about all of these patriarchs moving through the Bible. Suddenly the people of God want a king. They have one. But they don't want just that king. They want an earthly king like all the other nations around them. So God calls a king named Saul. Saul's anointed and Saul falls. And this picks up in 1 Samuel. Turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And if you're new to the Bible and right now you are fumbling through not knowing where to go, I'm so glad you're here. And don't be embarrassed. Look in the table of contents, find it, you'll be in good hands. We're moving into 1 Samuel, which is this history of Israel. Saul has fallen as a king, or will fall as a king, and David is going to be anointed. David, through this anointing, is going to show us where the stump of Jesse originates. That's why we're doing this, and this really matters. Look with me at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, Samuel's the priest, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Do you see that? I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Jesse has eight sons. All of his sons are going to come before Samuel. And Samuel, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, is going to decide which one it will be. They're going to start in order of oldest to youngest because that's what you would do. But you will begin to see that the way in which God does things is often not the way we would do them. We know that. So go with me now to verse 10. 1 Samuel 16, 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Can you imagine, Jesse? I mean, the priest, Samuel, is there. One of your sons is going to be the king to replace Saul. Friends, let that soak in. This is a human man. Samuel's a human man. This is what God wants. In order to replace Paul, it's going to be one of your sons. So one after one, they are rejected. They're not the one. What's Jesse thinking? The Lord has not chosen these, Samuel speaks. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's a shepherd. How powerful. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. And then the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel does what the Lord commands him to do. David is the king. And it's from this line that the king, Jesus, is going to come. 
It's from the stump of Jesse, this line that Christ is going to be connected. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 6, or chapter 7. I want you to hear what's going on at the end of David's life. This section is titled, The Lord's Covenant with David. And then we're going to move into Isaiah 11. Nathan is speaking to David. Here's what he tells him. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is speaking these words to David. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, so immediately we know this is not Jesus yet. This is another earthly king. There will be many earthly kings in this line. But this one will have iniquity like the others. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And here's why that matters. Time and time again, these kings would be anointed and they would fall. They were godly, some for a while, and then they weren't. Some were never godly. And in the midst of that, whenever the people of Israel would walk in disobedience to God, there would come God's judgment. It's righteous. It's perfect, but it's real. And so the rod that we're speaking of would be the rod that the Lord would use to bring righteous judgment against his people. But always he would preserve a remnant. Always he would save a portion of his people. So go to Isaiah 11 now. Instead of starting the scripture reading this morning with Isaiah 11.1, 1, I had us zoom in a little bit. And the reason is because what comes before. 11.1 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So what? Well, what's missing in this translation is a simple three-letter conjunction, and. And and is used at the beginning of every one of these verses because I believe Isaiah wanted the people reading this to have a heartbeat that would begin to go a little faster as they begin to see described for them the Messiah that's coming. This Messiah is not going to be a normal Messiah. He's not going to be a normal teacher. He's going to be something far, far greater. So to understand it, you've got to look at 1033. Just go two verses up. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He, that's God, will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. What does that mean? Assyria was the enemy. It was the rod, the, the nation God was using to discipline and punish his people so that they would repent and come to saving faith again in the Lord. Assyria was rounding them up, ready for the attack. And what God is saying is, I'm going to bring judgment against those, even those that I'm using to bring judgment against you. And there will be a time when you see the Assyrians and they are nothing but stumps. 
These trees, these massive trees of, of incredible power will be lopped off. There will be nothing there but stumps. But that which is true of them is also going to be true of my people. Because of this judgment, when you see my people, it's going to also look like a bunch of stumps. But from this picture, there is a stump. While it looks, and Isaiah wants us to see this, completely hopeless, there's a stump called the stump of Jesse. And from the stump is going to be a shoot. And that shoot is going to come from that which is alive underneath, which is the roots. So look with me at 11.1. Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Dale Ralph Davis says, Don't move too quickly off this phrase, the shoot in the roots. He says, I believe Isaiah has much for us to see here. And here's what it is. The shoot and the root point to both the human and the divine nature of Christ. Here's how. This is amazing. Jesus is the seed of Jesse. He is in this Davidic line, but more than just being another king, he's the new David. Just like he was the new Adam, he's the new David, the perfect David. He is the seed of Jesse, but he is also the source of Jesse. He was present at the creation. He is God. He is fully God. He is fully man. So that when Isaiah goes on to describe who this Messiah is, we see that it's much greater than just a human deliverer. It's truly God. He is the seed of Jesse, but also the source of Jesse. He is the offspring of Jesse, but also Jesse's origin. Let that sink in. When we begin to read about who he is, Isaiah tells us in verse 2 of Isaiah 11, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. That same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who lives inside us. That same spirit is the one who illuminated your heart and mind at some point to believe the truth about Jesus. And for some of you, that might actually be today. It also tells us what he's going to do. Verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity, the words also justice, for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the break of his lips, breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is what he's going to do. This is a promise of the coming Messiah, his first coming. 
But then with his activity, who he is, filled with the Spirit, what he does, what follows is peace. I'm not going to unpack all of this for you today. Children, go home with your parents. Friends, talk about this over lunch. Read what is said in verses 6 through 9. This incredible picture of the peace that exists between that which we be natural enemies. One of the things to see here is that there was a natural disconnect between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this wasn't just a message that would come when Jesus arrived and Paul, the apostle, helped spread the gospel. It's taking place here. And here's how we know. Go to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who is that? It's Jesus. He's the root of Jesse, the seed, but also the source. He's the offspring, but also the origin. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. But it's not just from Israel. It's not just from Judah. It's from Assyria, Egypt, Pethros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coastlands of the sea. So that's why when we sing about this rod of Jesse, the stump of Jesse, we see this powerful history of, the, of trees in the history of redemption. And Paul then says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so, by that, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is not just for the Jews. It's also for the Gentiles. That's why before that, Paul said, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Praise God. So back to my first question. Are you a believer? abounding in hope. If you're a non-believer, I already know that answer. But if you're a believer and you would say, I'm not abounding in hope, God's grace is sufficient to restore you and restore me to the place we should be, no matter the circumstances. But here's the truth. There are times in this life when we look out and we see the darkness and we see the decay. We see the corruption. There are times when we're quiet enough to look at what's going on inside us and we see the darkness and decay. And what it looks like is a forest of stumps where there's been nothing but destruction Nothing that's beautiful. It just looks really bad. It might be because of where we're at physically or emotionally or spiritually or relationally. It might be where our children are in those categories. It might just be the way you think about the way our country is, is operating the world at large. It looks like stumps. But for the Christian, 
when we see that devastation, we can abound in hope because of this root, the root of Jesse. And so when Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope, he's reminding people what he has shown them already. That in the history of trees, in the history of redemption, it never looked more dark and more devastating than when there was a stump that was the base of a tree that was cut down that would become a cross in which our Savior, who was laid in a manger, meek and mild, would hang so that you and I, who deserved that, could be set free from Satan's tyranny for all eternity. This side of heaven, there are going to be dark days when it just looks like a field of stumps. But it was never darker that day. Never. But in God's providence, in God's plan, that stump of Jesse, that root, that hope, gave birth to hope. Hope that abounds is a person, and the person is Jesus. Hope is from God. Hope is God. Is he living in you? And no matter how dark or how many stumps you see, he is alive. You and I are part of his remnant. If you cannot confidently say, yes, he's in me. I know I'm a believer. And I praise God that you've heard this message and it may have seemed a little bit like freshman history, but it's the living word of God showing you the history of redemption. If you want to know that you're in Christ, please come and talk to me or Bill or somebody else that's here. And the person I would ask, if you don't want to talk to me, is somebody that you can see who's abounding in hope. And Christian, Christian, if that's not you, don't try to make yourself suddenly abound in hope. You can't. But you can come to the Lord with open arms and pray, give me hope. And he will. Jesus Thank you for the patience of the flock today. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that we will be singing later today as well as at the conclusion of this service 
about the good news of the stump of Jesse. Father, I pray that if there's any here who long to know they're saved, they want salvation, and they have not known your promise, that even now, friend, you would just simply confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you would trust Jesus for salvation alone, receiving him alone as our Lord. You make that decision, tell somebody that's here, Father, may you bless us with this abounding hope, even in the midst of bitter providence. May we not see it primarily as an emotion, but as a reality. And we thank you, Father. We thank you so much for sending your son. In whose name we pray, amen.